This is an audio recording of the Lendit Fintech Weekly News Show. The show is streamed live on Lendit TV, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter at 5 p.m. Eastern Time every Thursday. In this fast-paced show, the Lendit News team and a special guest discuss the most important fintech news stories of the past week. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Fintech Nexus Weekly News Show. My name is Peter Renton, Chairman and Co-Founder of Fintech Nexus, Nexus, and joined, as always, by my good friend and colleague, Todd Anderson. How are you doing, Todd? I'm well, Peter. How are you? Doing great. And our special guest this week is none other than the legend himself, Ron Shevlin. How are you doing, Ron? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for having me back. I, I have to tell you guys, I really do appreciate the opportunity to do this. And whenever you call and ask, it just confirms that I didn't screw up that badly the last time <laughs> that I get to come back. So, Of course. Of course. Well, we love having you here. Yes, indeed. So um, let's let's get right into it. We've got a lot to cover today. I'm going to start with the, the Federal Reserve. And this is something that um, has been talked about over probably the last several years with uh, it's basically federal reserve finalize they're finalizing guidelines for access to their master accounts for the and so this is something that people that fintechs have been asking not just crypto companies but fintechs have actually been asking for this and um there's they've, they've basically brought in a, a layered approach obviously the crypto people i think you know we've had um you know um caitlin long from custodia who's famously sued the fed and uh, now I don't know how what that's what what it's going to mean for her, but anyway, it's going to give that she wants access to this master account at the Fed, and uh, and you know this opens the opens the door for that. Uh, I thought it was, uh, you know, it's been a long time coming, but uh, it looks like we might be making progress. I guess we still need to see exactly what the the guidelines might be. I don't think we've uh, seen the full details on it. Seems like it's opened the door for them, but. Uh, they're still being a bit coy on exactly what they're looking for and what the tiered approach is and what that um, extra scrutiny will be from like the, the state uh, chartered, um, you know, like for Kraken and, and Custodia, um, like the crypto uh, industry has been asking for for some time is, is just clarity. Right. Uh, and I hope this gets them further to that because I think there's a lot of crypto firms that want to work within the the guidelines and the systems that that are in place uh, but they're unsure what those systems are uh, and hopefully this this helps get them uh, to that clarity yeah I totally would agree with you on that Todd but I do think that at the least uh, there's some really good signs and things that come out of this in terms of the depoliticization of the process right you know the, the the this was has been very you know opaque process in the past now you know somewhere somewhere says what's the they were struggling with like it's kind of detransparent what what does detransparent or untransparent <laughs> someone said you mean opaque yeah, yeah yeah that's it that's the right word so uh you know that i think is a is a huge step but I, I do think we're still going to see some grumbling from the crypto companies and the fintechs because that tiered approach really tends to favor those companies, institutions, whatever you call it, you know, whichever the right word is there for those that have, um, you know, charters, those that have, are FDIC insured, 
Uh, and you know, you can make an argument that that's that's the right the right levels. But I still think uh, you know, I would kind of look at it like, well, the door is ajar for the uh, fintechs, uh, but the cryptos are going to have to do some pushing to, to see some daylight there. Right, right, and it's obviously it might it might be a long road before approval is uh, is granted. So we'll be following that one. Anyway, I want to switch. Um, uh, Ron, to a, a, a column that you wrote this week and something I've been following along on uh, as well. And this is the whole idea of um, what would an Apple bank account look like? And there was a, a tweet, uh, I think it was just a, a week or two ago, probably a couple of weeks ago now, that um, you know that really put it out there saying, Okay, what let let let's 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 sort of brainstorm and hear and see what it looks like. And we I know we had a there was a couple of people that uh, that signed up um, and uh, wrote about it. I know that um, I think one of them was was uh, Alex Johnson, one of your former colleagues, I think, uh, Ron. And then we also um, we also had I, I tell you, uh from the unit write about it, and you've you've written about it as well. So maybe I'll just let you describe you know what why you wrote about it and what you wrote. Yeah, so listen, I, I hate to ever take issue or disagree with, with folks that I consider friends and have a lot of respect for, both Alex Johnson and Itai at, at UNIT. But both of their responses, and it was Benedict Evans, who's a fairly well-known uh, blogger, tech analyst. I, I think he's made some big investments in the past that has gained him some notoriety, and, and he's a great blogger. I, I get his, his stuff every week. And, and he kind of put out there a tweet that said, hey, fintech folks, you know, what would a, uh, uh, an Apple bank account look like and, and how would it work with the rails? And both Alex and Itai had some really detailed uh, graphics and explanations. And But I came away reading that thinking, man, it sounds like you guys are just taking every conceivable checking account feature that there ever has been mentioned or defined and threw it all into the pot and said, Apple's going to do everything. Mm-hmm. And my feeling was like, nah, I don't think that's the way Apple approaches things. You know, to me, the the Apple design ethic or ethos is simplicity. And right. they, more importantly, is that I kind of looked at it like they they abstract the complexities of whatever they're doing away. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to push a million buttons in an Apple app. It's it's you know much more intuitive, much easier. And so my take was that they wouldn't throw everything under the into a sink into an account, but would, and I think they would challenge the notion of what an account is. And I think this is where the real innovation and reinvention of financial services and banking in particular uh, needs to start with is, look, we are hampered with this idea that everything is an account. We have a checking account, a savings account, a brokerage account, a million payment accounts. And who would who's out there that's going to really rethink that process better than anybody else? And it's probably Apple because they start from a completely different design perspective and probably a more of a you know first principles approach. So I don't think they're going to start with an account concept, and I don't think they're going to throw everything in. I think it's pretty much a jobs to be done kind of no no pun intended with Steve Jobs is a jobs to be done kind of approach where. Um, what are you trying to do? Well, I need to move money from me to him. Okay, then we'll figure out how to do that the best way. Um, you know, you, you want more interest on your savings? This is what it takes to do it. It's not a high-yield savings account. It's This is what you have to – maybe you buy the 
you pay for the higher interest or you do so through behavioral incentives and things like that. So, you know, that was my take is that I, I think Apple would come to this challenge with a completely different mindset, not a, you know, how many features functionality functions can we throw into an account? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Todd, any thoughts? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm more on the side of Ron. Uh, yep. in this one, uh, just because you know, Apple doesn't do things that are that are fairly typical. Uh, and while the ideas they had were uh, a lot of them, <laughs> it it felt more like just typical accounts that were you know maybe with an Apple logo on it essentially. And right, um, you know, while I don't know what Apple might be thinking, and and you know they'll probably surprise us if they move in this direction but i think it would look a lot closer to what ron is thinking than it does uh what the other the other guys were thinking yeah you know, so- one oh go ahead Peter, sorry. Yeah, no no uh, you, you can go ron oh i was just going to say one thing that i had written about and i've gotten absolutely zero feedback or pushback back on and i i'd love to get you guys opinion is i, I thought that if they were to do this and attack this problem that Plaid would be a great candidate for them mm-hmm. to to acquire, and I think regardless of whether or not they try to you know redesign and reinvent the 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 the, big, the basic banking account or checking account, that that could still be a great uh, acquisition for them because it would enable them to then start make those connections to all the fintechs that they could then bring together and integrate into this. Um, nobody's kind of like told me. God, Ron, you're crazy. What the hell are you thinking? I don't think you're crazy at all. I feel like that's, I mean, it all depends. Like what we don't know is how much Apple wants to get deeply involved in financial services. If they, if they, if, if we suddenly find out they're approaching Plaid and they're going to buy Plaid, um, that that's, that's the indication we've been looking for because they've done lots, you know, they've got where they've got a card, you know, credit card, they've got Apple pay. They've got, they've been playing around the edges, um, but they haven't gone all in. And that's well, they announced the buy now pay later project. They acquired credit kudos. Yeah, I uh, think they're on their way to, to going the, a lot more all in. Yeah. Uh, and I think what they've done so far is they've gone all in on, on the Apple ecosystem. And I think a, an acquisition of Plaid would go all in on financial services because that would just take Apple. And like you said, Ron, it would just immediately connect it to hundreds of fintechs and all the the banking connections. I mean, it would unearth, you know, probably something that we haven't seen before in financial services if they were to do that. Um, and I think their focus thus far has been very much on keeping people in an Apple ecosystem. This would go outside of that. So I'm not sure. Well, how- yeah. Well, I mean, I think they could still keep them in. I mean, there's a way yeah. to, like what Steve Jobs always did was, close was you know, was it's- sort of, this make the make the complexity disappear, and that's yeah, that's kind of uh, how they do. It. Anyway, we we can't talk the whole half hour about Apple, even though <laughs> we can. I'd love to. <laughs> um, we have other news. There was a really interesting piece in the Economist this week um, that that you know something that we've talked about on the show here a bit. And, you know, it was, it was basically can the Visa Mastercard duopoly be broken? Question mark. And really, basically, said that yes, it can be. It's like because thing is crazy is Visa and Mastercard are two of the most profitable companies on the planet. Not in financial services. Yeah. Look at their net profit margins; that is staggering. And you know, I'm, I'm 
the, the Jeff Bezos mentality that your margin is my opportunity. There's massive margins to be had there. Lots of companies looking to it. We got, you know, Stripe, um, Klarna. Um, you know, there's also like the figure, um, you know, offering. They're, they're all trying to create these kind of different types of payment rails. Apple could create a yeah. different type of payment rail. So, I, I I think it's it's one of the most interesting questions in all of finance is what's going to happen with these payment trails and love to love to get your thoughts i'd like to hear ron's thoughts first i mean you know probably banking and durbin amendment and stuff better than anyone out there okay a couple thoughts number one can the visa mastercard duopoly be be uh stopped or whatever the answer is yes absolutely yes the question is how would that be done and I think there's two ways that, that the, it would get done, either some big bang regulatory approach uh, or through over time chipping away um, with alternatives. I, I think the merchants want to try um, uh, you know, the merchants and, and to some of the start, some extent, sort of the startup competitors kind of want the regulators to kind of blow it all up. Not going to yeah. happen. Right. Not going to happen. Yeah. And so the the you know the the the, the pro, I think it can will change over time. Look, look at the history of business. No matter who's got a monopoly or a position, has almost always at some point in time been challenged through technology change and other things that have happened. So you know to think that you know a hundred years from now, Visa and Mastercard are still the 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 duopoly is 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 not necessarily very realistic. But the, the question is, is like, how do you continue to chip away and find the pieces of it so that you can grab? I, I think what the merchants have done in more recently, I mean, that whole merchant customer exchange thing was absolutely ridiculous, what, six, seven, eight years ago. But, you know, the approach that the Starbucks have taken to create um, stored value cards and things like that, that let, you know, people load balances on chips away at the at the duopoly creates alternatives. Um, and I do, let's, you know, I know you didn't want to talk about Apple for 30 minutes, Peter, but reality <laughs> is, is just like that Todd says is like the kind of things that Apple is doing is the kind of thing that's going to chip away at it. And perhaps a lot faster than what the merchants are doing. But the answer, I think to the fundamental question that the economist raises, yes, it can be, can be broken. Mm-hmm. And I agree. I, I think there's no way that it's it's going to be regulatory driven. I think regulators might put some incentives to help chip away, but there's no way the regulators are going to come in and just whack Visa and MasterCard and immediately spread that out. There's not a chance at that. Yeah. One last thought, though. You know, one of the things that really just ticks me off about the regulatory approach in this Durban 2.0 is it probably hurts a lot of community banks and credit unions a lot more than it hurts MasterCard and Visa. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, the way they kind of position all of this and then, you know, the merchants with their nonsense BS about, oh, interchange is the second biggest thing after wages. I don't know. It seems to me my numbers show that, uh, you know, there's about $250 billion worth of advertising that's happening. So right. if you merchants want to improve your margins a little bit, why don't you just stop advertising a little bit? And, uh, you know, quit blaming interchange for, for everything. And then go, fine, go back and start taking cash again. See how much better that is for you. <laughs> right. Well, I think that the, the, the point is, I think we have the interchange fees are, are, are high. They're much higher than they are in the rest of the world. And I think that's uh, that I, I can't imagine that will stay 
even for the by the end of the decade, I imagine it's going to be vastly different. So yeah, I totally agree. Okay, we're going to talk a couple of stories now about lending. This is in the Wall Street Journal. We had the Affirm CEO, Max Levchin, had him speak several times at, uh, at our events. They, um, he basically was saying that, that Affirm doesn't get as much respect as what he thinks it should. feels like they've got really solid underwriting. Um, and you know what he's actually, he's almost rooting for uh, a recession because he says that's going to silence the doubters um, because they're going to come through a recession just fine. He may get, but it might be a case of be careful what you wish for because uh, we all, certainly people, a lot of people are talking about recession, but uh, he is very much of the opinion that a firm is, uh, you know, sh- is, is doing a better job than everyone thinks. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> going out and, and basically hoping for a recession to prove your business model is, is quite the, uh, the cocky way to go. Um, but I, I mean, the early indications are um, that, you know, the fintech lenders aren't that much smarter than the, the banks. I mean, yes, there's, I'm sure there's some out there that, that do a phenomenal job and, and are in line with where the banks are, but you know, the numbers right now, I don't think support wholly support with what he's trying to say. Now, maybe in a recession, we'll see. Because everything goes up in terms of uh, bad uh, news for for uh, lenders in a recession, uh, but uh, you can't tell me right now that what they've shown to date has proved out their business model. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of other stuff kind of going on here that's just kind of just too bad and disturbing. You know, you look at a firm stock price and say, "Oh, it's down seventy percent," and boy, that's really negative, and that that's you know, this is not a good sign. Well, 70% down from what? From an incredibly unrealistic valuation right, to right. start from. Right. So maybe where they're at is actually fairly valued and positively. I mean, if it, we didn't have the ridiculously high valuations, m- maybe this would still be a strong valuation. Um, I do think his choice of words around hoping for a recession was kind of misplaced a little bit, but I am a big Max Levchin fan. And I'm generally a fan uh, of where buy now, pay later could be going, mm-hmm. which is not as a like a pure lender, but as a tool that actually helps the merchants sell better. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, it actually is way of introducing payments as a way to influence the choice of product and provider. And I think um, uh, Klarna is very attuned to, to that type of thing after pay as well. I don't, not sure if a firm has kind of been on that path as much. Uh, and I think to your point, Todd, about them not being any smarter than the, than the banks, I think that's actually spot on. I think, you know, and, and, and any good lender will tell you, it, you know, it takes a year for your models and, and, you know, risk uh, profiles to kind of take hold and, and gel. I think where the buy now, pay later market is going in general, though, is towards uh, deeper specialization and, and focus. You know, uh, I think sort of as a general consumer products, goods provider of BNPL, they're going to be kind of challenged because there'll be providers who will focus in on, you know, fashion and luxury goods, those who will focus in on other areas. And we already see this, you know, take the Lone Star Technologies out of the Philadelphia area that focus in on, you know, uh, home repairs, you know, heating and, and uh, you know, AC type thing with, the, with those kind of providers. 
know, they're very specialized in terms of the buy now, pay later type of services they provide because they underwrite that every day in and out, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and trying to underwrite everything from, you know, guitars to, to soap, I, I think is a bigger challenge. Right, right. Okay, moving on to a related story. We also in the Wall Street Journal was talking about uh, rising interest rates, putting the squeeze on fintech lenders. A lot of talk about Upstart. I mean, Upstart's been in the news a lot since they had their earnings, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And you know, they've 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 had poor, worse performance on, for their underwriting than I think they expected, causing the demand for their securitizations uh, um, it's weakened, spreads have doubled. Um, they have they had their borrowing costs increase. Other fintech lenders, I mean, if, if you don't have a fixed rate that's been set um, before interest rates went up, then you're you're paying more. Uh, and, and you know, let's face it, every fintech lender has you know warehouse lines with banks. Some of them have have long term agreements in place, which means that they are not affected in the short term but um, if you've got a variable rate agreement in place your your cost of capital is going up right now and that's what we're seeing i think uh, across the board i mean it's no secret why lending club and sofi bought banks to you know shore up their funding sources right. i mean you know part of the the business model that originally they helped pioneer um you know, when it, times hit tough, the funding sources either dry up or get very expensive. Uh, and then ultimately, where do you have to do? You have to pass that along to the consumers or the borrowers. And um, then you have to adjust your models. And uh, I think the the fintech, traditional fintech lenders, as we might want to call them now, uh, are, you know, feeling the, the pressure uh, of that business model. Uh, and I think more should look at the the lending club SoFi avenue as a potential long term play and moving away from just lending as a, a core product because you know it, they get squeezed and and the monoline business is is not what it once was especially as we're heading into a recession and you're going to see probably more consolidation than you already have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, quick point I just make. I think it's same story as the BNPL, a bit of an overreaction. I mean, it's certainly hard, but the well-managed uh, fintech lenders are going to come out of this and uh, you'll ride the next wave. It's, it's about managing the business. Right, right. Okay, now we're gonna, uh, we've got a few crypto stories here now. Um, let's see. We'll, go, we'll start off with um, BitGo, because BitGo, this was the first big crypto deal. Galaxy Digital announced last May, that's 15 months ago, uh, that they were going to pipe, they were going to put um, acquire BitGo, and they were already a partner, like a, an investor in BitGo, and um, 1.2 billion dollar deal. Obviously, the crypto winter came, and suddenly Galaxy says oh, that's not really worth 1.2 billion, I don't think. And uh, anyway, they've tried, they've tried to get out of the deal on a technicality. BitGo of not happy about it and they're asking for a hundred million dollars in breakup damages um and so this you know it, it reminds me a little bit of the the elon musk twitter thing at a smaller <laughs> much smaller scale but it's uh you know someone's that a deal was um, was made and now someone's getting cold feet i mean so some of this probably goes back to you know the last couple of years and just the insane valuations of everything uh, and when everything finally came back to earth, um, you know, so, some 
targets uh, didn't look as, as as good as they once did. And, um, you know, I think that played into the Twitter thing, uh, you know, their uh, initial Elon's initial, um, you know, interest and uh, how much maybe he could get off the price and um, playing games there. And, uh, you know, I think some similar stuff is happening here. Um, I do think it's, it's, you know, the, there seems to be some bad faith here as well. Uh, you know, using those quote unquote technicalities to get out of things when, you know, it's probably wouldn't have been the case if it was a, you know, seen as somewhat of a sweet deal. Mm-hmm. I just look at this and can't help but wonder, was there nobody involved in this deal who would said, what if crypto prices took a 50% hit? Would we still do this or, you know, or how do we, you know, and I don't know, maybe there was, but it sure as hell seems like there's, there was nobody who bothered to speak up if that was uh, on their minds. Well, there's a lot of fanaticism in crypto. That's for sure. And that just goes, it was going up and to the right for quite a while. But, um, yeah. and those, the hardcore believers, and I think, you know, the, what's his name? Novogratz is a hardcore believer. Just, you know, like you said, Ron, it, uh, they're, looking through very much Bitcoin colored glasses uh, for far too long. Uh, and then when they get to a point where probably, you know, somewhat going to lose their shirt or, you know, going to be significantly more costly to them. And they find out these technicalities and be like, Oh, you know, we can't do the deal now. Right. Okay. Moving on. Um, I want to talk about, there was a really interesting article. And I, have ne- I have not seen an article like this. Um, in a major publication, the Wall Street Journal, again, talking about um, the banks that are really at the center of the crypto industry. So there's, there's a few banks that are, um, that are banking the crypto companies. Obviously, these, these, these companies have to bank somewhere. And there's Signature Bank, Silvergate, um, Customers Bank. Uh, we know these, you know, we've had several of the, uh, these, these uh, we've had people, people from um, these companies speak at our events. These are three of the banks that are really going all in. Um, they are banking, you know, they've had wild, wild kind of uh, um, you know, swings in the, in the number of the deposits. They're not, they're not like traditional, like normal banks that grow their deposit base, you know, 2% quarter over quarter. This is, you know, wild 50% swings because they've got so much, these crypto industry has so much cash. Uh, really interesting to kind of see just a, a little inside scoop on on how these banks operate. And some of them have just said, right, we, we are going to be 100% crypto, like Silvergate has basically taken off all of its other, all of its other businesses and um, you know, has gone all in on crypto. But uh, really I know these banks are they're caught up in it and they're 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 going to be part of this sort of the 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 up waves and the down waves ron you know you know the the community banks pretty well do you think some of this was driven by you know losing i know the article talks about losing market share to, to bigger banks and this was a strategy that they thought could give them a segment of uh, potentially the consumers that the big banks weren't going after and, and get some value from them and maybe grow some uh, a loyal customer base. What what are your thoughts on kind of what happened here with some of these banks that kind of went all in? Uh, I, first of all, I don't think this really relates to the to the consumer retail market at, at all. I think you know for a good number of years up until you know the pandemic, I, I don't really think the community banks were 
ceding the retail market to both the fintechs, the large banks, and the credit unions. It's only really been really, I think, in the past two years that I've seen signs that they you know, want to get back into the, to the retail market. Um, and having seen that story, you know, two things kind of hit me. One was, man, I can't believe there was a C- CFO in those banks who were willing to let their key performance metrics like swing wildly like that. I mean, some of the, the, the stuff was just crazy. And the second being, um, who are the board members on those banks that went along with, with some of this? You know, I think to a certain extent, and might be not more less Silvergate than the other two, that it was a bit of a you know diversification and an opportunity to kind of jump into a new space and capture it. Some, somewhat similar to the way some banks and credit unions have tried to capture the cannabis market. These guys were trying to capture, get in early into the in, into the crypto market. Um, the Silvergate example, though, where they you know have kind of gone in 100%, seems like a incredibly risky move uh, on that part. But um, I, I don't know them very well, and I'll assume that they they knew what they were doing going in. I think the the bigger surprise to me was Signature, which is seen as a a pretty well known name, especially for for uh, small. Uh, medium-sized businesses i mean they're they're relatively big where i live in new york in long island uh and they were the bigger surprise in this move than a silvergate was in my opinion mm-hmm. okay we're almost out of time but i do want to i want to bookend it with another story on the federal reserve because <laughs> we started with the fed we're ending with the fed um they all like this is also crypto related they basically have told banks if you want to engage in crypto you need to be careful. Basically, that's what it's saying. There's several steps you need to take. You need to have different risk management systems in place, yada, yada, yada. They are, they, they're basically saying that it's okay, but be careful. I'll jump in. I think this mm-hmm. is a great move, and I think it's all good for the banks who want to get into this. And, and many of them who, that, who kind of shy away are afraid, as uh, from not just from the Fed perspective, but for the state regulatory and compliance level um, and the examiners. And I think this gives them more guidance to go back to because the Fed has come out and said it. So I, I think this provides at least a start of the guidelines that many of the banks want and need. Said it as good as you can right there. Okay. Well, we are out of time, everybody. Thank you uh, so much for watching or listening. Um, we Just as a reminder, in at the end of this month, August 30th and 31st, Dealmakers West is happening and at the beautiful Ritz-Carlton Resort in Laguna Beach. It's going to be a blast. And uh, it's an all-meetings event, no content whatsoever. Still, there are still a handful of tickets left. So if you want to go to fintechnexus.com, sign up there. Anyway, thanks, Ron. Really appreciate you coming on again today. Thanks as always, Todd. And we'll uh, be back next week. Thanks, Ron. Later, guys. Thanks. See ya.